You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. There's something down there. It's Gollum. Gollum? He's been following us for three days. He escaped the dungeons of Barad-dûr. Escaped. Or was set loose. And now the ring has drawn him here. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring, as he hates and loves himself. Smeagol's life is a sad story. Yes, Smeagol, he was once called, before the ring found him. Before it drove him mad. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of men. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Welcome, everybody, to the Green Dragon. I'm so excited to be here tonight. Uh, I hope you've got some ale, some nice pipe weed. I've got incredible people here to talk about something really special. We are celebrating 15, that's right, 15 years of Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, part one of the Middle-Earth Saga. And I'm so excited to be talking about this. I This is like when we started this show, when I started the show, it wasn't we because I started the show a long time ago. I was like, we need to talk about Lord of the Rings. We're finally going to do it. And I've got some incredible guests with me tonight to do that. All the way from Atlanta, Georgia. So excited visiting the Green Dragon, Bethany Blanton. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be back on the show and talking about one of my favorite movies ever. uh, And one of my first geek loves, I'll I'll put it that way. Uh, And especially with the two of you guys. Thanks for having me on, Matt. You're welcome. You're welcome. I, You know, after spending our time at Dragon Con and we actually wrapped up our Star Wars Dragon Con experience by watching The Fellowship of the Ring, 
Uh, yeah, I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show. But Megan's rivaling you. Uh, Megan, welcome back to uh, the 602. I mean, Green Dragon. <laughs> I'm so yeah. excited to be here. Yeah, this is... Um, after talking about all of the Hobbit films, I'm excited to get to something that I really love, which is Lord of the Rings. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. In fact, I, I, I do want to mention that because, you know, it was funny. I was thinking about that, too, today, that the nice continuity that you and Alice came over from Educating Geeks, I think it was y'all's first time to be on the show, to talk about the Hobbit films, and we had a great time. We really enjoyed that. If you want to check those out, those are, this is a long time ago, 9, 10, and 11. That was the episodes wow. that we covered. Yeah, that's way back in the day, and we're all now at episode 98. So yeah, that was a long time ago. And I'm, in a galaxy I'm so far, honored far away. to have been a part of it from the beginning. Yeah, it's awesome. Before we dive into the subject, I just got to remind everybody, of course, you can find all the Trek FM shows on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. Uh, we're a featured provider there. Of course, we're on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, if you would like to send us an email about what you think about the Lord of the Rings films, especially Fellowship of the Ring, go to Trek.FM slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club. That'll come straight to me and I'll send it to the host and we can answer your questions or I would just love to hear what you have to say. Of course, speakpipe.com is a great place to send us a voicemail. That's speakpipe.com slash trekfm. And of course, the best place to have a discussion with anyone from the Trek FM network is on the Babel Conference. And that's on Facebook. Just type Babel into that search field on Facebook, and we will let you write into our listeners only discussion group. Before we talk about the movie, I kind of wanted to journey to Middle Earth with both of you and hear about your fandom and kind of what got you into the Lord of the Rings. Because, I mean, I don't think many kids, for the most part, you, it's a, you pick up that huge volume. You know, what is it that got you into this universe? What helped you keep coming back? What, what was it for you, Bethany? For me, I, I don't know. It, it, uh, it was a whole other world, and there are many of those in science fiction and fantasy these days. Tolkien's world is a special one. It's It never ceases to amaze me. It never ceases to inspire me. It never ceases to make me think about the world and to uh, feel that somehow I should be both more like hobbits and more like, like Gandalf at the same time. How did, um, what was your first uh, experience? Uh, did somebody give the book to you and it was like, hey, you should read this? Or well, how did that go for you? Ah, well, The Lord of the Rings has been a longtime family tradition for the Blantons. And my dad uh, was the original Lord of the Rings fan in my family. And my older sister is a huge Lord of the Rings fan as well. So, or I should say, Tolkien fans in general of all of his works. So, it was at a fairly young age when they handed me The Hobbit, and my dad was like, you should read this now. And I read it quite voraciously and excitedly, and that that was what hooked me. Um, it wasn't too terribly long after that I read The Lord of the Rings uh, on condition from my parents that I not read the chapter Shelob's Lair at night, uh, which was a very good and wise decision on their part because it terrified me. As do 
you know, ginormous spiders for most children. Oh, yes. And yes. this adult. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Ron Weasley. Yeah. So I've read the books multiple times and I've really only read Shelob's Lair once, I think. I I loved the books. I've I've lost count of the number of times I've read them, but at least three or four at this point, and I've actually started to reread again. Uh, so I, I have reread, or or rather re-listened to by audiobook, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring recently. Oh, nice, nice. Well, Megan, for you, what was kind of your journey into Middle Earth? Well, um, I started reading the books because they put out a teaser for the first movie. Um, I think the first teaser came out when I was, it was really early in high school for me. And my dad showed it to me and was like, you need to read these books. Um, oh, I feel old. <laughs> um, and uh, he didn't tell me anything about it. He just said, you need to read the Lord of the Rings. And I was like, Lord of the Rings, what's that? And I was so far into my space opera days. I was so into Star Trek and Stargate at the time that I had no idea what, like I didn't even go to fantasy when he told me I need to read Lord of the Rings. So he uh, showed me the trailer and then I picked it up. I was like, yeah, I need to read this before the movies come out and uh, blazed through them. I think I read all three of them cover to cover in a matter of weeks. And they're so good. They're just so good. And then I got to have the great experience of watching all of the movies come out um, through high school and college and uh, just totally be a giant geek about it. Yeah, I love it. it it's funny for me. Uh, I So we we have this fun little group that we've been having on uh, I, uh, Facebook Messenger. Uh, Bethany's a part of it and with some other people that we ended up going to DragonCon with. And uh, we started sharing uh, photos of ourselves as children. And the one that I just shared of mine self, I was probably six or seven. And by that point, I had seen Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I had just also found the Chronicles of Narnia. And after those two things graduated to Lord of the Rings. And those, those three things, I think, cemented my love of other worlds um and 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 one of the things i think about lord of the rings that just captivated me kept me coming back was the fact that it's so dense it's so deep there's so much to get you know um people complain about something like a chapter revolving around the council of elrond and they're like it's 20 pages long and all this you know it People seem to complain about it like it's one of those chapters of the Bible where so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so. You know, it's, to me, it's just utterly fascinating because it feels, there's something about it that feels real yeah. in a lot of ways. I totally agree. I, I think that's what captivated me and it kept me coming back. And so, Megan, I, I know you were excited, obviously, that the movie was coming out. Bethany, were you excited when you saw that they were going to be making a, a film version of this? I, I was indeed, but I actually um, had not read all of the books yet at this point. Uh, so I I was so torn because movie spoilers were beginning to become a thing at the time. Uh, and so I was tempted to look at that because, you know, I, I was still, I was a teenager at this point and 
uh, I I hadn't I hadn't finished reading them, and they were they were taking me a while, just in the sense of you know they took me longer than a couple of weeks. Right. So I I was just so torn, but it did make me more excited, and I wanted to see the movies after. Uh, but I actually did not see the movies for uh, a couple of years after that, uh, due to some interesting circumstances. Because, um, I mean, at that point, were were y'all still living overseas, Bethany? We were not. But the thing was that literally my, my family are such fans of this genre that we had these conditions set with which we had to watch them. They had to all be watched in a weekend, and they had to all be watched with my dad, my mom, and my older sister all present <laughs> and at the same time. That's and cute. my dad still worked overseas at the time. So those conditions were actually a lot harder to meet than uh, we originally thought. So at one point, <laughs> uh, when he came back on one of his breaks, um, it, it was a family mini vacation that we spent uh, a weekend in a small cabin in the north of Georgia uh, surrounded by beautiful scenery, uh, but spending a lot of the time inside watching all three extended editions for The Lord of the Rings. That sounds like a great vacation to me. Me too. I mean, it was. I, that's awesome. <laughs> and I loved it. That's awesome. Oh, man, that's a great story right there. I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was excited that the films were coming out. Uh, you know, I didn't know Peter Jackson from Adam at this point. Uh, I hadn't seen any of his other work. I hadn't seen like the Frighteners and those kind of things because they weren't really uh, something that was up my alley. But I, I, you know, I remember when the trailers started coming out. I just loved the look. I thought it looked fantastic, and I just couldn't wait to get to him. What's interesting is that Peter Jackson's journey to Middle Earth, the film could have been really different. Originally, there were two films that they were going to make. Uh, and they were going to be made through Miramax, and they had a budget of $75 million. Do you even think that could have worked at all? Uh, no. (laughs) 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 Not the way that Peter Jackson ended up doing it, right? Uh, No. I mean, gosh. When you think that, obviously, they could make three Hobbit movies out of that book, uh... There's just no way I think that this would have worked at all. And the trouble was is that, you know, uh, Miramax ended up pulling out because they wanted to make so many cuts that and and like combine so many different things together. I mean, it would just made a mess of the film. Like this is this is one thing they wanted to do. They wanted to merge Rohan and Gondor together with Eowyn as Boromir's sister. What? Yeah, that was an idea that they had to try and bring this into two films. I mean, so yeah, it just would have been awful, just awful. So Jackson goes around Hollywood for about four weeks showing this 35-minute uh, video of their work. And he ends up meeting with uh, New Line Cinema's Mark Odesky. And I think uh, the best question anybody ever asked was, why aren't you making this in three films? Thank God for Mark Odesky. I mean, <laughs> yes, I, I can't imagine this film, th- this film trilogy not being the way it was because i mean 
I don't know. I got to ask you guys because we're we are going to be talking about the extended edition. So just kind of diving into that for a second. Do you feel like for the most part these movies really do work better when you have more time than less? Or how do you guys feel about that? To me, the extended edition is the only edition that I watch. Um, I cannot remember the last time I watched the theatrical release of any of the Lord of the Rings movies. A lot of the things that I really love in particular, I think, are in The Fellowship, like the expanded opening. You see more of the Shire. They do more. They bring in the concerning hobbits section from the beginning of the book. Right. Um, which I know a lot of people complain about. It's one of the, you know, it's kind of like the Tom Bombadil section. People think it is unnecessary. But if you're a really big fan of hobbits like me, um, because I'm like, I could have totally been a hobbit. I want to spend more time in the Shire with the hobbits, getting to know them, watching them be silly and, and enjoying their lives in the Shire. They cut out things like Galadriel giving her gifts to everyone. And those gifts are important. It's an important part of the, of the story later on. So I think all of the things that they put back in, in the, the extended version is all really important stuff that, yeah, they had to cut it for the theatrical release. And I get that, but to me, this is the only version. I I completely agree. It's uh, I've I've seen the non extended editions once, and that's it. And it's been a number of years now. And I actually I have a difficult time remembering them, but I I still do distinctly remember being so disappointed that specific scenes and again in the Fellowship were left out. Uh, but I I was also really disappointed that the Eowyn and Faramir scene in uh, the Return of the King was left out too because that's that's a massive character development for both of them, and it's just like it's so sad. No, I I I like what both of you are saying a lot, and I completely agree. You know, um, Lord of the Rings is one of those series that, to me, yes, the extended editions are the only edition. In, in the same way, I feel about um, then you know the Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition these days. Like to me, that's the version of the movie that I'll always watch. I'll never watch the other version. I I can't imagine watching the theatrical cuts anymore because uh, there there is something about what they add that adds depth uh, and layers to each of the characters, to the world building, to everything else. To me, the story feels better when it doesn't feel so rushed. And and part of that, I think, is because it feels more like the book. Because mm-hmm. uh, Fellowship, specifically, is not a rushed book at all. No. Uh, there's kind of a meandering feel to it on purpose because a lot of the characters are trying to figure out what's going on. And so this movie is already more rushed in its storytelling so, like you were saying, I, uh, Megan, I really love, you know, the concerning Hobbits part where you have more time in Hobbiton and things feel like you, you get an opportunity to kind of be in the world that they're trying to save so that it, it, it feels bigger when you see all the desolation that's coming later on uh, and what they're trying to keep coming, you know, uh, to the Shire and to the entire realm of Middle Earth. So I, I just really, I like that, and I, I completely agree with you guys. And so the fact that Jackson gets to make a trilogy and then do something pretty unprecedented, which was, you know, they would come back for reshoots for the films, but also for the extended editions, which I think is fantastic. I mean, that's just really incredible. 
So um, on top of that, there's a real sense of design in the way that they design Middle Earth. And I wanted to talk to you guys about that because I think this is the thing that makes these movies, to me, so successful, is that Jackson wanted a gritty realism and a historical regard for fantasy so that it wasn't, it didn't feel like a fantasy movie. It almost felt like, you know, when you watch like a, a King Arthur movie or something, in the end, it just kind of felt like lost history. And to me, I think that's what makes this so awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the the people of New Zealand really came together to pour themselves yes. into this movie. Um, I don't know the numbers on how many jobs this movie created in New Zealand, but I know there were so many artisans involved in this. It's such a beautiful place that they've created and we get to go on a tour of New Zealand during the movie and um, I can't wait for when I get to go visit there someday. It ju- You're right. It makes it feel real. Um, it doesn't look cheesy. It doesn't feel slapped together. It feels so rich and I just want to go live there. <laughs> I, I would love to live in any of these places that we visit except for like the nasty places. Um, but it's so it's so beautiful. <laughs> Wait, you don't want to live in Mordor? No, I don't want to live in Mordor. Although I kind of do because I live in Phoenix, so it's like the next closest thing. There you go. <laughs> I've already. It's I know like how you live on the slopes of Mount Doom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I totally agree. It's just every time I watch this film, I'm just blown away by how beautiful everything is and how well put together it is. And I'm gonna design my Hobbit hole right around what hot what bilbo's hobbit hole looks like because that's where i want to live when i retire wow i'm at a loss for words because new zealand is so amazing and so beautiful uh and is top on my list of places that i want to see in the world wow it's i i have random pictures of new zealand on basically all of my electronic devices they are screenshots (laughs) and screensavers and um i i tend to have scenic pictures from Lord of the Rings saved in random places. Uh, actually, I, I bought a Middle-Earth map poster yesterday. Uh, <laughs> and so I I really want to go to New Zealand at some point uh, to experience that. And I, I would love to do the full Lord of the Rings tour, uh, including, of course, mm-hmm. on top of the list mm-hmm. would be Hobbiton. And they will probably have to drag me out of there kicking and screaming when it closes at night. I'm just worried that if I go to Hobbiton, like, I'll break down crying like a crazy person. And then I'll just be the crazy American (laughs) in Hobbiton. It's so beautiful. (laughs) Just watching watching that intro, like, it makes my heart swell so Mm -hmm. much. And I get misty-eyed just looking at it on camera. So if I'm actually there, I don't, like, I don't know how I'm going to contain myself. So we'll see what happens when I get there someday. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about the making the Hobbit movies is that they were like, why don't we should just make this for real this yeah. time uh, so people can come visit. And I am I'm just with you guys. I, I would, you know, 
Uh, I might sell my, well, I wouldn't sell anything really, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would love to go to New Zealand to, to go on one of those tours and visit all of these places because like you guys said, it just, the one of the th- whole thing about New Zealand is that it has all of these different elements, different types of topographies, and yet it also still feels so otherworldly because so many of us don't know or didn't know what it looked like until then. You know, uh, New Zealand is just a place that most of us hadn't thought of. Now we all can't stop thinking of it. Uh, and uh, it's because of this um, wonderful grandeur of, of creating a place that felt so organic, so real. I mean, you know, they, Hobbiton is built months before filming so that all the plants grow over everything. So it doesn't feel like it was just put there. I mean, you know, they they make pieces of armor in the same way that you would make armor back in the day. They're they're pounding it out with a hammer. You know, the same thing with the swords. I mean, everything in the film feels like it came from another time because it was crafted with the same loving care as another time. And I think that's what makes this movie uh, just feel so incredibly special. And I think too, and I don't, I don't know if you guys would agree, but the, like the costumes created by the art department and of course everything along with it, with the prop department, it feels familiar historically but it never feels like an out-and-out copy. Yeah, it's definitely rooted in reality. Um, and everything has so much depth and detail. Like one of the things I was really staring at this time watching it was um, Galadriel's gown and mm, all of mm-hmm. the hand beating that was done. And that piece of um, that piece of wardrobe must have been ridiculously heavy, but you know, the way it moved and the way Kate Blanchett worked with it. I mean, what a phenomenal piece of costuming just in that one section of the movie. And it's like that all the way through. Uh, one of the other pieces that I really like is the mithril shirt that Frodo inherits yes, from Bilbo. Yes. It's such a beautiful piece. It looks heavy, but it looks light, right? <laughs> they did a really great job of making it look like mithril. So and and I know they probably had to make multiple versions of that for various purposes. Those are some of the things that really stood out to me just this time around and there's so much to look at. Well, let's let's just kind of dive through Middle Earth real quickly. So just Hobbiton in general, what what was maybe one of your favorite things all around just about Hobbiton itself with the design? What do you for think? For Hobbiton, Bethany? I would say it's all the little details of the hobbits' lives. I mean, obviously, I could touch again on New Zealand and the Shire, uh, and that's true that that's amazing. But, uh, you know, it's it's all the little details, all the food that's there, you know, the hand carts that they're carting around, the giant uh, pigs that we see everywhere, <laughs> all the little flowers yeah. in the cart, <laughs> the cart paths and the gates and just the wooden doors and it's just it's the love that the hobbits put into their home and their lives uh they're they're simple folk as Gandalf would say but uh they they love their life and it's so it's so obvious to see in the surroundings that they build for themselves uh and Mm, Peter Jackson and co 
and everyone who built Hobbiton just did an amazing job of building those. Yeah, for me, one of the things that I love the most about Hobbiton is how perfectly earthy everything is, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> their homes are literally built into hills, and it they they they're a part of nature. They are growing their own food and they're cultivating and everything, but they're still living this really interesting and simple life. And yeah, I agree. I love seeing all the the food. They take simple pleasures. They hang out with their friends. They eat what they love. They drink what they love. They smoke what they love. And it seems just like a great, beautiful way to live, doesn't it? <laughs> I think both of you kind of hit on the thing that I love. And, and I'll add to that just a little bit. It was the way in which Bag End felt so real. Yeah. Like when you walk into it, it it doesn't feel. I mean, I, there's a hole in in the ground that a hobbit lives in, and yet it feels like a home that you would legitimately want to live in. And the way in which it feels like it has been there forever, you know, passed down from baggins to baggins. And I just I love that. I I think it's it adds such a warmth and a heart to the movie. And as you guys are saying, Hobbiton is, I, I was watching this, uh, my, my best friend was visiting uh, and we were watching the movies together and I turned to him and I said, this is kind of what I imagine heaven's like. <laughs> like Hobbit life has got to be what heaven's like. You know, you have this gorgeous place. Everybody is kind of happy in the job that they have. They love life. Uh, you know, they're there just to enjoy it and to soak it all up and to be there for each other. And I mean, that to me, that's heaven. So, yeah, I, I, I love totally that. I agree. Well, the, so real quickly, anything for you guys that jumped out at all about Brie that you really liked? I, I love the contrast between Brie and Hobbiton just because it, it shows that, yes, a lot of the folk in Brie are... Uh, kind people, good people, uh, but it shows that they're mm -hmm. stepping out into the world. Uh, the boundaries of the Shire, um, and, and you see this with other boundaries like uh, Rivendell versus outside of Rivendell, but uh, there's there's very much the sense that they've stepped into a world that uh, contains more danger now. Yeah, and I mean, everything's much bigger there too, right? So the, the hobbits are dwarfed in the space, and it's a lot less earthy, right? It's it's a city, it's a town run by men mostly. So we're starting to transition away from Hobbit life at that point. What about uh, Rivendell for you guys? Uh, because I know for me, I think this is the first place, you know, beyond Bag End that I was like, okay, you know, I would. this is the place that I would live. I, I had the exact same reaction, honestly. Uh, Rivendell is very beautiful and... and one of the things that I love about the elves is their architecture and how much they they build amazing buildings and large structures, but they're so beautiful still. Um, I like Rivendell, but I don't think it's my favorite location. It is beautiful, and I love um, I love the mountains and the trees, and it's the first time that we really get to see uh, the elvish architecture for sure. But if I was going to pick an elvish location where I would live, um, is I'd be living with 
Galadriel. Um, and I'm totally blanking on what's in Lothlorien. Lothlorien, yeah. Because um, I want to live in the trees, right? <laughs> so that's like the elvish equivalent of the Shire. They live up in the trees and Galadriel walks around barefoot when there's moss everywhere. Like, heck yeah, that's like my kind of heaven right there. And that was my favorite part of the book when I read it. So, yeah, I, I, I'll I go to Lothlorien. I'll live up in the trees. <laughs> I, I like that. You know, I... There's, there's to me, I, I love the, the grounded beauty of what they do in Rivendell. But then, of course, yes, I got to Lothlorien, and so it was like, but I've always wanted <laughs> to live in a treehouse, you know, <laughs> with Galadriel, uh, you know, who, who doesn't, even though a dwarf wants to live with an elf. So uh, that was, I mean, that was another incredible, I mean, just gorgeous, I mean, I'm almost speechless here because it's this wonderful Art Nouveau elvish look. And <laughs> the just they the way that they just kind of nail that to mm-hmm. me is stunning. It's just stunning. And it, of course it's brought to life by the fact that, you know, Galadriel lives there. Uh that's what my iPhone is named <laughs> after her. Uh, I love her so much. So, no, I agree with you. It's just, that's a stupendous piece of design, as is each one of these places. And I don't want to point out what's so incredible about each one of these different races and places is even Rivendell looks different than Lothlorien. They're both elvish cities, but they have their own distinct nature, and that's just blows my mind. Yeah, they're so totally different because Revendell is so architectural. Um, and I feel like you could just wander around those buildings looking at all of the art and history that they've collected and admiring the architecture and strolling through the gardens. But yeah, I I would vacation in Rivendell and live in Lothlorien in the trees. Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, what can we do really but just sit here and gush about these locations and yeah. they're <laughs> they're amazingly beautiful and and I think it it reminds me so much and I love how Peter Jackson captured this in the films, but it reminds me of Tolkien's portrayal uh of industry and uh the the age of the machine and how Tolkien had a love of not just the simple life of the hobbits, but of being in nature. And uh, if I am recalling correctly from reading about him, he did believe that uh, people should be in nature, uh, at least when you can be. Uh, That can be difficult in our world now. But it does make a difference uh, whenever I, if I've been a long, long time without even just simply a walk outside or spending time outside somehow, uh, I know that it affects me, and I I know that it can, uh, real-world talk here for a little bit, Uh, people can have seasonal depression, and people can uh, feel less happy, Mm -hmm. some people, when they live in cities, for example. Uh, So it it reminds me that there's, there's almost a a restoration of peace uh, of a part of our soul that happens when we're surrounded by uh, nature. Well, I I love that you're bringing that up, Bethany, because it does a great job of transitioning us and to talk about Isengard and Orthanc and, and that 
the way in which there's this huge dichotomy in the film that does come up that Tolkien definitely is talking about is the machine of man and war and of, you know, the gears grinding of steel and all that and the destruction of everything that's beautiful and natural or what's unnatural. And I love the way that this film visually brings that theme forth in such a massive and scary, like, god-awfully scary way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's especially hit home by how uh, Saruman has all of the trees torn down and how, uh, for example, in the film, mm-hmm. the orcs get really excited about this because they have an active dislike for the trees, uh, for the for the wood, uh, and it's it's a mm-hmm. good reminder that again nature is a good thing, and these beings of evil are taking pleasure in the destruction of it. That's true. That's really true. And I I mean, it's, well, of course I love how it comes to bite them back in the butt, you know, uh, <laughs> later on. Well, so. and, and we get to see it happen too because it. It's very brief, but we see the beautiful lush forest when Gandalf first arrives, and then everything after that, we just are constantly seeing that scorched earth around that tower. I mean, it's heart-wrenching to see all of that destruction, especially when you had seen um, all of that beautiful forest growth there before. I love that, you know, we we get to visit there, and we see what it looks like before, and and what, um, you know, Saruman is charged with taking care of like he's he's the wizard he's the top of this order and it's his job to take care of this world as well as um you know this place in which he resides and he just utterly disregards that and destroys it uh and it's just it's so telling because and sad because we you know uh we do that a lot as human beings. It's an interesting thought too that uh for me the the ents are so old and wise in so many ways but so out of touch with the world. And I think it mm-hmm. it's representative actually of hobbits too who are quite out of touch with what's going on in the world until uh our four mm-hmm. hobbits uh and heroes get thrust into it rather unexpectedly uh, and start having Mm. to adjust. But, you know, being much younger than Ents (laughs) and less slow, and especially in the case of Pippin and Mary, just having that particular type of personality, they adjust more quickly. Uh, But I I think that they learn from Treebeard. They learn from the Ents to appreciate more of the world around them. Quickly before we move into the casting, I just wanted to ask you guys about the creature design. Um, you know, because we get uh, goblins and urukai and cave trolls and balrogs and all of these things mm-hmm. that in in you know live in this world. And I, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, you know, when you read the book, did this live up to those expectations of what that stuff would look like? I think so. It, I think it more than lived up to my expectations, honestly. The films blew me away, uh, and I am one of those people with an especially vivid imagination 
Uh, and it, that does affect how I read. And I, I have mental images of characters, of locations, uh, of battles even. And the films were just incredible. And there was very little about them that I didn't fall in love with. Uh, but the scenery particularly transports you there. Yeah, I think for me, uh, you know, all of, I mean, gosh, the Urukai and the goblins and everything, and that stuff just, you know, if you're watching it late at night and you catch it at the <laughs> wrong moment, uh, like when that one Urukai comes out of the, the mud womb, <laughs> um, that's that's scary and freaky. And, and I mean, that's, that's Peter Jackson at his best uh, horror. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for me, uh, it did and it didn't in, in some places. For the most part, it did. You know, most of the things that I didn't like are really nitpicky things that I've just kind of let go over the years. The ants aren't in this movie, but I was a little bit disappointed with them. I thought the cave troll that's uh, in, uh, when, that they fight when they're in the mines of Moria uh looks really cheesy <laughs> it does now yeah it does I now mean. in particular i remember thinking in the theater that it looked kind of cheesy but you know it's it's in it's there for the scene and then it's gone and the scene around that troll is actually phenomenal and it's a great scene in the extended edition because all of the characters get their moments it's it's what the scene is like when you read a book so all of my all of the things that I don't a hundred percent love are are just so nitpicky. It's not even worth like delving into because there's so much to love, and it's just so rich and and so much of the environments and the locations really matched what I was thinking of. So um, you know I'm right there with Peter Jackson for like ninety nine percent of this ride. Well, I think that it's probably time for us to dive into the cast of Fellowship of the Ring. And, of course, really big shoes to fill because, you know, this book has been one of the most popular books up at this point. And, and it's it's been rated plenty of times the best book of the 20th century. Uh, of course, that's now uh, that we're out of the 20th century. But then it was still, I mean, it, it's one of the top 50 books of the, the 20th century, uh, even at that point. And so... We've got enormous shoes to fill with characters that people have been reading and loving since the 60s with, you know, Gandalf, Frodo, Aragorn, and so many more. And so big casting was Elijah Wood playing Frodo Baggins. I mean, because one of the interesting things is is that Frodo is a lot older in the book. Uh, he's like in his 50s or 60s, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, but, you know, Elijah Wood is... Definitely not. He's he's much younger than that. Much younger than that. But for me, I just let it go because I figured eh, hobbits age slow, right? You know, so he's just a really good looking, you know, 50 year old hobbit. Yeah. Um, Elijah was, I think, uh, 20 when he filmed when they were doing these movies or, or around 20. So but yeah, I'm with you. I, I can look past that because they do age much slower. I love most of the cast. Um, mm -hmm. I really had never seen Viggo Mortensen in anything. Right. Um, and he is just so good. He's so good in this role. I loved the casting of, um, Ian Holm as Bilbo. Uh, he's just so perfect. And mm -hmm. 
so so much of this cast i i just adore and think that they were perfect selections i i really only think of the main cast that sometimes i have issues with legolas uh but it's in some ways i think Mm -hmm. that that's just because for me the book legolas and the movie legolas are both so different uh and it it took Mm -hmm. me a a couple of times of watching because believe me I lost count of how many times I've watched these films ages ago. <laughs> and <laughs> uh but the movie Legolas has has it he's grown on me. I I still like my book version better though. I'm I'm right there with you. The movie Legolas has grown on me too. And and I do think they do a great job of making him awesome in his own right. Like in particular the battle at the end of the film, there's a great shot where he stands He's just holding his ground and he shoots something like seven orcs uh, with his As bow. Aragorn and only takes care of one. Yeah. I mean, on, I mean and how can you not appreciate that, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, his character is so different. And um, he was one of my favorites in the book. Not my favorite in the movie, but he has definitely grown on me. I think he fits around the rest of the cast, though. That's That's a very good way to put it. I thought that Elijah Wood did a perfect job as Frodo, but in the book and in the movie, mm-hmm. Frodo was never one of my favorite characters. Uh, I I love his story and I do I do love the character, but I I have a I guess a better appreciation for other characters more. His he just his journey really spoke to me, but Frodo himself never spoke to me as much as the others. It is interesting because Frodo is never the most dynamic character in the book or the movie. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, the more dynamic characters are all around him. I mean, Sam is probably the most dynamic character mm-hmm. in in the story. And, uh, you know, I, um, <laughs> I was making fun of with my best friend a little bit, uh, the, the Samwise uh, Gamgee uh, accent that kind of goes and comes every once in a while you know <laughs> when he's like this will be the farthest away from home i've ever been uh and he just really hits that bean at the end uh and so but i you know sean austin uh really does a great job of i think portraying the earnestness he has the spirit the of sam yeah for sure i love him cat i love his casting uh because Sam is one of my favorites. And I do totally agree with you on on Frodo really isn't the more dynamic character. Um, I think it's probably because so much of the story is told from his point of view. So I think he's less dynamic because he's we're supposed to identify with him. And so we're being entertained by all of these characters around him, just like he is. That makes a lot of sense. And... I guess we we do have to take in cons- into consideration the fact that he is being worn down by the ring, and we see obvious signs of that as time yeah. passes. But even before the obvious signs are there, that has to be taking a huge burden on his personality and his energy and his ability to be a standout character. You know, he's 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 the one friend in your friend circle who is really struggling with something at the time and re- isn't maybe fully acting like themselves. You know, that's a great point too because I think we really see that in the very first shot that we ever get of Frodo Baggins when he turns towards the camera after he's sitting under that tree. 
he's so vibrant and full of life and the smile on his face is just so it's his whole face and we never see that smile again until the very last shot that we get of Frodo at the end of the third movie I think the whole everything in between those two shots are the burden taking their toll on him I think that's an excellent point that's actually man I love the way that you're you're both putting that because I think it reminds me almost of uh, Pilgrim's Progress and Frodo doesn't get released from the burden, like you're saying, till the very end. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't fall off until, I mean, even even though he gets to go home, it's it's never gone until he gets to step on that boat and go to the, uh, you know, the beautiful land beyond the sea. It's, yeah. it's just, um, yeah, that's a, that's a great, I love that. Uh, And I think what's so interesting about this whole idea of like casting Middle Earth is that uh, for me, the one character that stands out is Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Absolutely. But it's because I also know that we could have had Stuart Townsend as him. And yeah, he was originally cast and uh, he was there for just a few days, I think. And they realized it just wasn't going to work. And so they... Yeah, they brought in Vigo, and his first day on set is the day on Weathertop where he's fighting. That's his first day. Wow. But I think it's him and his seriousness that actually, and especially if you watch the extras on the extended edition, if you haven't, just stop this podcast now. Go watch those. You can come back when you're done. But the, those are the best extras that have ever been done for a film. And the way in which... He took up the mantle of being Aragorn uh, was was really incredible. I mean, he fixed his own costume. Uh, he carried his sword around with him everywhere, legitimately everywhere. Even when they weren't shooting and he just went out to eat, uh, you know, the, when they were hanging out, he, you know. So, I mean, he took very seriously this role, and I think it just shows through because there's such a charisma, but it's a quiet charisma that he yeah. has, you know? And I, I love that, which, you know, on the opposite side, you have the Boromir character who's just kind of this boisterous, hulking, like, man's man. <laughs> and uh, poor Sean Bean. I mean, <laughs> he just can never stay alive. And, you know, I am a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and watching this movie, I don't see Sean Bean. I don't see Ned Stark. I see Boromir. He is so good in this role and it's such a it's such a different role from the thing that I'm totally obsessed with Game of Thrones. He's so brash. He's so uh I love the casting here and he's such a great for foil for Aragorn because he he's the guy that wants the power and lives the power whereas Vigo just does such a great job of being that reluctant leader. He just does not want it. He's convinced that his that he's tainted because of his family's history. And yeah, I I love Sean Bean in this movie. He's so fantastically tragic. Me it's too. Great. And it's it, you you almost don't think about it, but the the characters uh, in the book and in the films. Uh, they're they're such incredible characters that you almost don't realize that Boromir is an incredibly noble and courageous 
man. Because p- people who watch it once, they might think, oh, yeah, Boromir was that guy who tried to take the ring. And I'm like, no, he was so much more. Mm-hmm. He's a really complex character for mm-hmm. sure. One does not simply degrade Boromir yes. <laughs> like that. Oh, I love that meme. Plus, uh, yeah, we get a great internet classic, meme out of it. Yep, we do. Uh, and no, you guys are right. He plays that so well because, you know, by the time you get to his death scene, which just strangely enough, I forgot, was not actually in the first book. It's at the beginning of the second yeah. book. I love the way in which he finds that redemption in not only trying to protect the, you know, Merry and Pippin, but also giving allegiance to his king, you know, which, which is... um a strangely spiritual idea as well, realizing who your ruler is before you die, you know, that you're not the one who is the master of all. There's somebody above you. I just really thought that that was such a special scene and probably one of the best death scenes. I mean, it's a long one, (laughs) but it's so well acted, you don't care. Well, I want to ask real quickly before I ask you about the ladies in the movie, Gimli, what did you guys (laughs) think of John Rhys-Davies? Oh, Gimli. I, I love him in the books and the film. I, I mean, this is this is going to kind of get old, so I should say right now that I love all of the characters in the books, and I love <laughs> all of the characters in the movie with a slight exception of Faramir, just because I felt like his character was maybe a bit misportrayed, especially if you're not watching the extended editions. Uh, but Gimli... Uh, I, I, I know some people complain that he was too much of the comic relief, but I like that. And I, I think that he thought of himself that way, that he actually he played that character to try to help people mm, yeah. chill sometimes, help people have a little bit of fun on a quest that is nigh impossible under sometimes extraordinarily dark circumstances. And I, I felt like that made the character quite rich so i i really disagree with people who say that in the movies he was just a a one note uh the character that caught all the humor kind of a thing well but that's what dwarves are like right like if you've read the hobbit or seen the hobbit movie that's what being a dwarf is is exactly who gimli is and i love john rice davies in, in the casting i was picturing someone exactly like him in my head when i read the books so he just stepped right into the screen and it was perfect for me. There's not enough of him. There's just not enough of him. There's not enough of him and there's not enough of the relationship that him and Legolas develop. It's there, but there's not enough of it because that's one of my all-time favorite things in, in all of the books. No, I completely agree. And I, to me, I feel like he nailed what I thought of as the character in the book. And I think like you guys were saying earlier with Legolas, he's, you know, he feels different in the book than he does in the movie. So it doesn't quite, it's not a one for one. I feel like Gimli really is. And yeah. I think John Reese Davies is just able to pull that character out and put that character on and be that character. And it works. Um, now, Lord of the Rings uh, is not something that a lot of women characters are involved in but they do play an important role in the story. And I think um, Tolkien gets a bad rap sometimes from people saying that he doesn't have enough for women to do, and yet these women are very important to the people around them. Like, mm-hmm. uh, And uh, especially Gladriel and Arwen. And, of course, Arwen, they, they bump up a little bit in this movie, her, her role. 
So I just wanted to ask you uh, ladies who are both on this podcast talking about your love for Lord of the Rings, what you thought of the portrayal of women in the movie. Overall, I really liked it. The uh, I did think it was a little funny that that uh, Pyrrhus would complain about Arwen's role because I, I felt like... Uh, of all things to complain about in the film, a role that, yes, was changed quite a bit, but was still pulled off well. Uh, you know, the one complaint I would always make would be, where's Tom Bombadil? You know? <laughs> but, um, oh man, I, I, one of my favorite, if not perhaps my favorite character uh, in these films and books is Eowyn. And even in the books... I she may her. not have much uh, page time in the books, but she's an incredibly important character. And I think sometimes we mistake the amount of time that a character spends on screen for their level of importance. Yes, the, I, I mean, that is often not a coincidence, but Eowyn is a character who I think is somewhat consistently uh, underestimated in the books. It's uh, she's incredibly complex with very few lines. You can tell that she is struggling with so many personal things, so many things that's going on with her family and her kingdom, uh, things that she's struggling with her role, and the fact that uh, I, I mean she is being pressured by this evil person who has essentially started to take over her kingdom that she doesn't know how to deal with or if she even can or has the position or power to do, to deal with. And you really have to, because she's a rather quiet character in a lot of ways, uh, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't broadcast things like Gimli does, for example, or the Hobbits. And you have to pay attention to what it is that she says and in the films, her mannerisms to, uh, understand that there's a lot more going on there under the surface than what's apparent that's obvious. I think that it's funny that Eowyn and Arwen have very similar storylines in the movies mm -hmm. uh, in that they are expected to do one thing and yet their heart wants another thing. And um, they, ha they, they have to choose which one they're going to do. And I love the way that in this film, you know, uh, Liv Tyler's character of Arwen is given more to do. I, I think it, it's, it's a fine substitute uh, to have her come and, and be introduced a little bit earlier by, you know, rescuing Frodo. And, um, you know, then her role is very much like the, the books from that point on. Um, you know, uh, they, they thought much more about having her be more active in other films and decided, no, no, we, we're just going to stick to Tolkien, which was the refrain most of the time. <laughs> Let's just go back to Tolkien. Uh, and so, but I think, you know, she plays the role with such, uh, her and, and Kate Blanchett have such a grace and beauty to them, but a real strength behind that. You know, the, these aren't women that you mess with, you know, there's steel running in their veins. Uh, I think, and they portray that all so well, and I just, I think it's beautiful. I can't say enough about what I, I think about both of them, and uh, Kate Blanchett can do wrong, especially in <laughs> <laughs> They are both fantastic, um, and I agree with you, 
Matthew, I, I don't mind the substitution where they bring in Arwen earlier because who was it in the books that rides Frodo to Rivendell? Was it Legolas or was it someone else? No, it's a different elf. Um, I can't remember Bethany, who that elf's it, name. Uh, it's, it's not Celeborn, no, is it's, it? It's, oh, it's one of oh the man. Other yeah, I'm blanking on his name too. Yeah, <laughs> it is It is another elf. Yeah. That's that's come out and has been. Oh, it isn't it. So, uh, yeah, they Glorfindel. Just, yes, Glorfindel. You're correct. Okay. So I so. mean, regardless, I think it's fine because there is this really deep relationship that they have to introduce, right? And it does make sense that she would be out looking for him if she knew he was coming, right? Um, so I have no problems mm-hmm. with that. I, I do think that the criticism of Tolkien in general. I mean, we're talking about a movie that we're talking about around 13 characters. Two of them are women. So it is a very male space. And the men are the ones in this movie who get to go out and fight and do the things that will save the realm. Um, Whereas Arwen and Galadriel stay behind. Um, And that is, you know, a bit frustrating, but we're also working with the source material. So you know, it is yeah. what it is. It could be way worse. <laughs> it could be way, way worse. I love both of these characters. I think they're fantastic. Um, I hate to use the, the modern cliche, strong female characters, but they have good storylines. And uh, I love the grace and power of Matthew, just like you said, that they bring to the roles. And I get even more excited when Eowyn finally does come into the picture. Well, and what's interesting is that it's not in the movie. It is in the book, and I, I forgot how much of a connection that Tolkien added to uh, The Lord of the Rings from The Hobbit. And The Fellowship of the Ring, the book, is actually kind of rife with uh, storylines that kind of get melded in that got put into The Hobbit film, which is you hear about the White Council. Yeah. So you get you get from the book the storyline and understanding how powerful and important Lady Gladriel is specifically. Mm-hmm. So even though it's not in that story and, and fully expounded upon, there you get the feeling that she's very important to this world. Um, you know, And I think they do a good enough job of getting that across in, in the, the movie. Uh, but... Um, and and we'll see it later on in the other films because they do, you know, Yeah, bring they have back more to do. It. Yeah. So I, I think that's wonderful and I really like that. Something that you talked about, Megan, uh, before we started is we're kind of looking at the good and evil in Middle Earth. And you had brought up uh, on the other side of the bar that wonderful quote from Gandalf that I think really sets the stage for the thematic elements that are going to play throughout all of Lord of the Rings. This conversation takes place in Moria, and Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And what Gandalf says in return is, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And that's such a great, line because it's it is Frodo's whole journey right he has this burden that through all the forces of the universe and nature have brought this power to him and he has taken on the mantle of being the one to destroy it so it it's in a nutshell everything that is driving Frodo I think 
And one of the things that I love so much about that line is to me, it's a really great, it's, it's what real life is like, right? I think these fantastic characters speak to us because they have such heavy burdens, uh, but real life feels like it's full of ridiculously heavy burdens and we all have to carry them and we all have to decide how we're going to move forward with them. It might not be that the entire world is going to be destroyed, but it it has whatever we're carrying has impact on our daily life and our daily happiness. And it's just such a phenomenal line. And it changes at the end of the film because Frodo remembers Gandalf saying that to him as he and Sam are riding off in the boat. And what he remembers is Gandalf saying, you have to decide um, what to do with the time that is given to you. So it's become much more of a directive than just people traveling together, which I, which I just love. Oh, wow. That's, you bring up such a great, great point. I'll, I'll digress for a second to apologize for getting really excited about talking about Eowyn. And we're supposed to be talking about the Fellowship of the Ring, so. <laughs> but uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of like what Galadriel says with even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And that's why exactly. it is very important for all of us to actually think about what to do with the time that we have. If, if we tell ourselves that, you know, it, it doesn't matter because I'm just Bethany Blanton and, you know, I don't really actually have that much power or influence and, you know, I'm not a president or a senator or, uh, you know, I, I don't have a, a bajillion followers on social media or however you measure that, it's people like that have a lot of influence and a lot of power but there are far more normal people who don't necessarily have a massive audience or a really high political position, for example. And if we all do what we can uh, with the time that's given us, we will create far more greater impact in the world than any single person can by themselves. Yeah, and one of the things I love is the word decide because throughout the movie we see all of these characters making those decisions as they're mm. being seduced by the power of the ring. Yeah. And we see Galadriel go through it. We see Boromir go through it. We see Gandalf go through it. We see literally every character that is close to the ring being tempted by it and that evil constantly pulling at them. I love the idea that... Frodo says, you know, I, I wish this had not happened in my time. You know, the idea that Gandalf, what he's saying is all we can do is decide what to do with the time that we are given. And that that's how we hold evil at bay in the world around us, by each person deciding to do what's right, you know, what's good, what's best, you know. And, and that's one of the things I think that's so amazing about the themes that are running through Tolkien is that in Tolkien's writings, Galadriel will call what they're doing the long defeat. Uh, that <laughs> um, in the end, um, it, it's you know it's a, it's a spiritual thing that you know it'll come to the point where evil win, and then Tolkien created a word which was a U catastrophe, 
And that meant that it was that happy turn that happens in a story where everything turns on its head and good wins somehow. And that we are part of that when we choose to to decide to do what is right with the time that we are given. And that's how we can help hold evil at bay. And it's like you said, you know, each person is being tempted by the ring and how they respond to the ring has to do with who they are, uh, you know, and, and the way in which it, it that kind of dark side seduces them. Mm-hmm. And but it's still their decision to to make a choice to try and take it or to turn their back on it and and let Frodo do his business with the ring to take it and destroy it. And I think that's just an incredible thing because I think Frodo's refrain is also something that we kind of say a lot. Oh, Absolutely. This is just so not fair, you know? Like, why is this happening to me? And, I, you know, um, it's funny because Gandalf's advice is pretty much life's not fair. But that doesn't matter, you know, uh, and I think that's a really important message in the world that we live in, too, because everybody's got their stuff, you know? Exactly. Every time period has the things that which they have to deal with. Um, the only thing that that person and that time is judged by is what people did with the time they were given. And uh, Did we spend all the time complaining about it and doing nothing, or did we do our best to do what is right and good for those around us. Uh, And I think that's the thing that was really interesting about Lord of the Rings is every character that's bad is coming at everything from a selfish motivation. It's selfishness that completely drives them. Mm -hmm. Um, And everybody that does anything good in the Lord of the Rings is somebody who becomes self-sacrificial. And I, I think that's... That's beautiful. I think that's one of the reasons I love this story so much because it reminds me of what is good in this world, as as Sam will say later, and what's worth fighting for. Exactly. What's worth dying for. I think that's great. Before we leave Middle Earth, I did want to ask you about one more thing, and that is the music of Middle Earth. Because (laughs) I think that Howard Shore did something that not a lot of people thought that you could do. And that was rival maybe John Williams in creating a sound for a series. Yeah, and he did it. He did. Yes. Like he really, really <laughs> I did. I totally agree. It's uh again, this is one of those things that I I play in the background along with my Star Wars soundtracks and Game of Thrones music and <laughs> Narnia music and all these other great soundtracks. Uh but Lord of the Rings is one I play consistently while I study. Which means again, I've listened to it for countless hours and probably an almost unhealthy number of times. (laughs) It's so good. It's so iconic. If you hear any of the pieces of music from this soundtrack, you immediately know that it's from Lord of the Rings. And all of the different themes that he's created and that he weaves throughout the world are just, oh, I can just listen to him all the time. I mean, I I, yeah, this is a short section because it's brilliant. It's amazing. I mean, the music creates the milieu in which you become familiar with everything from the themes to the different races, to the characters, to the fellowship, to uh, the different areas of middle earth to which we visit. 
everything has a sound to it. And, and again, it's the same way that John Williamson's things. There's a sound that creates a... It, it's almost as if the sound is the ocean with which you float on mm-hmm. that surrounds the boat of the movie. I don't know if that makes any that's sense. That's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's what I'm going to go uh, with. One thing that it amazes me specifically about Howard Shore is how many of the places in the movie have their own themes because we've their we've been so used to characters theme. having themes, uh, but to have place themes, it really, really works. It's part of what makes those locations feel so rich and helps you become helps them become characters in their own right. Um, we were talking about something similar recently on my other podcast. We just listened to, we were talking about the Battlestar Galactica soundtrack, and that has themes for different ships and the fleet itself. And it's one of my favorite things about the show. And this has that going on right here. And you hear that music about of the Shire, and you want to go to the Shire. You just do. It's beautiful. And I think that it, it's funny because you don't really think of this, but there are less places visited in the movie than there are characters. And I think that's one of the reasons that he creates themes for, for the places because <laughs> it, it would be almost too muddled to have character themes. But mm. place themes then get played for those different characters. And then he can play with the tempo. He can play with the key it's in. He can do all of that and kind of change those for the different characters he's using. But then, uh, so it, it, it feels more unique that, uh, as he does that. And I think it's just genius stuff. Uh, I, I'm with you guys. I have the complete recordings for all of these, and they are incredible. Unfortunately, to buy the complete recordings now, I, I don't even think they're available on iTunes uh, oh, really? for anyone. Going back to what you're talking about, it being easier to do place themes versus specific character themes, that all of the characters are so rooted in the places where mm-hmm. they come from, right? Like there's four Hobbit characters. They all come from the Shire. All of the places represent all of these different races of Middle Earth. And so that makes so much sense because you hear that Hobbit noise and you know that the the Hobbits want to return to the Shire. That's where they should be. That's where Hobbits belong. Um, and the music of men can represent all of the different characters of men and the music of the elves can represent all of the different characters of elves so it's a great way of grounding us in middle earth because Mm -hmm. it is so divided along the different races that that inhabit the locations no i think you're so correct uh now just for anyone who's who's wondering i i did look up just to make sure checked my facts for everyone you can find the Return of the King complete recordings on iTunes, and it has the whole thing uh, there, which is wonderful. But you, they don't have available. Uh, I can't see it anywhere on there for the Two Towers or for, unfortunately, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I don't know why those aren't available, but the Return of the King is. So if you don't have that, I would snag it before for some reason it's gone because it's fantastic uh and if you can find a used copy somewhere which is very difficult to do for those extended edition uh soundtracks the complete recordings i've looked and they can be anywhere from 170 to over 500 dollars. yeah they're expensive yeah so that's that's how good the music is 
uh, you know, we talked through fellowship. We could continue talking because it's Tolkien and mm-hmm. there's so much we could talk about. But uh, it's time to, well, uh, pretty much it's Rosie's telling me it's time to close the Green Dragon. So what would you ladies rate the Fellowship of the Ring? I mean, if I'm being totally honest, it's a 10 out of 10. <laughs> that is how I feel about each of these films, which is kind of boring, but it's the truth. I, I don't really think that there's anything wrong with you feeling like that. So I love it. Uh, what about you, Megan? I would rate it five pipes of Shire weed out of five. I, <laughs> I love it. Ratings. I just, <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to say that this to me is four and a half out of five tankards of ale there you go i don't think this one is a completely perfect there are some things that that kind of bug me uh, uh about it um and and most of them are minor but it kind of keeps that perfection out of there and so but that don't take that as me saying you shouldn't watch this this movie is incredible this isn't i mean when I think about starting this trilogy, the way this does, I think all it did was just heap tons of fuel on the fire for Lord of the Rings. Like, it, this just mm-hmm. set it ablaze all over again, and I love it. Uh, and I love that we got to talk about it um, here in the Green Dragon 602 Club. Uh, Ruby and Rosie are fantastic to have let us visit. We've got some great associate producers who help make sure the show keeps coming to you guys each week through Patreon. Uh, they support us. It's Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Norman Lau. Now, Patreon is a way in which you can make sure that all the shows here on Trek FM keep coming to you each and every week. It's, it's just impossible for the size of the network for us to be able to do this alone. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of the team today. We have some amazing perks for you that come along with uh, signing up at different levels. Anything, though, that you can do will help. Uh, on top of that, you know, while you're in iTunes, hit up the 602 Club with a star rating in the review. Uh, both Megan and Bethany know how important that is for <laughs> podcasts to grow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, do that for us here. We really appreciate it. And, of course, you know, when we get new reviews, we mention you on the show. So it, it, whatever you want to say about the show, however you want to rate it, uh, please do. Uh, and, and we'll give you a shout out here, but, uh, Bethany, thank you so much for being here tonight to talk about and start off the Lord of the Rings series. Um, I think we've got you back for the others, but before we get you out of here, uh, where can everybody find you online and, uh, tell them about, uh, the wonderful podcast that you're involved with as All well. All right. Well, you can find a lot of, uh, Star Wars related stuff over at starwarsreport.com. I'm one of the founders of the site there that we've had for a couple years now. And, uh, we have a great podcast by the same name at stars report on Twitter. And if you want to follow random ramblings about all sorts of things in Lord of the Rings, uh, you can follow me on Twitter personally at Bethany L. Blanton. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope I don't get too boring with my just yeah. consistent gushing of these films. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, because I'm going to do the same thing probably. Now, Megan, love having you here. I love that um, we have such a wonderful partnership with Educating Geeks. So just let everybody know 
where they can find you personally and about Educating Geeks, which they should also be listening to on top of the Star Wars Report. We're just loading you down with incredible podcasts. So much good stuff to listen to out there. Um, Well, if you want to follow me personally, you can find me at Meg Calcote. That's M-E-G-C-A-L-C-O-T-E. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, And if you want to listen to Educating Geeks, we're actually pretty similar to the 602 Club. We like to bring new people into our favorite fandoms. We don't revoke geek cards. We sit down and watch Lord of the Rings together with our friends who have never watched Lord of the Rings. Um, You can find us at educatinggeeks.com. And we're Educating Geeks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have some really fun episodes coming up. I don't think we have Matt scheduled for a visit. We have to get Matt back on sometime soon. Maybe. Have y'all ever done a Lord of the Rings book? No, but that's definitely something we really Mm -hmm. need to do. Yes, we should do that. We should do that. Well, we've got our plans. Uh, Fantastic. You heard it here first, a little behind the scenes. Thank y'all so much for joining me. I, I This has just been a blast. And uh, now it's time to go watch The Two Towers. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. Then I do Literary Treks with Bruce and Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And that is so much fun. I hope you will join us there. Of course, we get to interview the authors as well. And I'm on a show called Aggressive Negotiations with my good friend, John Mills. It's so much fun talking Star Wars with him every week. So I hope you'll join us there over on the Nerd Party. And of course, you can find that on iTunes just by searching Aggressive Negotiations. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now to hear...